Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I'm so pleased to have Terry Schilling on with me today. Terry is the uh, CEO, he's the president, rather, of American Principles Project, um, from which perch he's responsible for developing developing and implementing APP's strategy, messaging, and political activity, both at the state and federal level. Um, and, and in particular, I wanted to have him on because th- the way that he has been leading APP and the kind of messaging that he's been doing um, has been so different from uh, oftentimes, or maybe increasingly not, you can tell me about this cycle, but um, has been kind of the messaging Republicans are unwilling to do, have been consistently unwilling to do. Um, and I thought there was nobody better to do a kind of autopsy on Republicans disappointing midterm performance than than Terry Schilling, although I, I do want to introduce him with one other a bit of information. Um, Glad.org, Terry says uh, that you have launched a petition to attack transgender student athletes misgendering trans women and girls. You have uh, created ads attacking the Equality Act and transgender participation in sports are rejected by Facebook for false and damaging content. So that's that's the uh, the download on Terry Schilling. <laughs> welcome, welcome Terry to High Noon. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Inez. I've uh, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and uh, you know we always have interesting discussions. And um, even when we disagree, I always learn something. So uh, really excited to be here. Um, well, I'm excited to have you I, again. Um, I'll just repeat myself and say I don't think there's anyone better to do this this autopsy. And here um, I'm using the word autopsy because I want to recall for people who were not interested in politics way back in the day. Um, there was an autopsy after Mitt Romney's loss in 2012, which to me felt very similar, not in the particulars, but in the sort of sinking feeling that, you know, well, this, this country is, you know, kind of went through um, a couple of really bad years and still is not, you know, sort of ready to change, change teams um, fully. But I, I wanted to do this autopsy with you because that autopsy is famously bad or was famously bad, right? Um, Essentially, the diagnosis for the Republican Party from that autopsy after Mitt Romney's loss was you need to ditch the cultural issues. They're divisive. You need to run on tax cuts um, and and being the the sort of steady hand on the fiscal tiller um, and get rid of all those those, you know, icky social issues that are hurting you. um, And you also need to do more outrage to minorities. Well, you know, lo and behold, the next cycle comes around, it's 2016, Donald Trump does the exact opposite. Not only does he win and put himself in the White House, but he also uh, outperforms or or um, equals Romney on all of the metrics that the autopsy was worried about, including performance with black and Hispanic voters. So obviously that autopsy was totally wrong and led the Republican Party towards really bad solutions in terms of looking how to uh, how to improve their performance. So what is what is your 10,000 foot autopsy on this disappointing performance? Why do you think that that huge GOP wave did not materialize? Well, it's it's very similar to the problems that we saw in the 2012 autopsy, right? Which, as you summarized it, the they basically said we need to uh, or that social issues distract from our winning economic message, and that in order to win, we have to ditch the social issues and really focus on the economic messaging. That's the same playbook that we essentially played here, except it was in terms of abortion, right? So the re so the reason I'm so familiar with that 2012 autopsy is because a American Principles Project and I basically led an effort internally here to do an autopsy and basically, you know, prove that social issues actually do win. They are very popular, especially when you're talking about, you know, late term abortion bans at like the 20th week or cutting out taxpayer funding. Um, Those issues all outperform the Republican Party. Uh, The vast majority of voters, 60% plus, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or Hispanic or Gen Zer, um, voters are against the late term abortions. Um, But when I look at 2022, I see a very similar problem in that Republicans are not comfortable talking about these cultural issues. They do not, even when they, it's clear that they have a huge opening to go on offense against their opponent and make them look extreme. Look, aborting a baby in the ninth month uh, paid for by tax dollars is very extreme. Voters don't like that. It's a clear, it's a layup in term. It's and it's actually the obvious counterattack to when Democrats lie and say you want to ban all abortions, even in cases of rape and incest, or when the life of the mothers is, is at stake. It's an obvious and truthful counter to it. 
but Republicans just aren't comfortable with it. They are comfortable, though, talking about tax cuts for corporations. They are comfortable um, talking about a host of other uh, cultural or um, some of the cultural issues, but mostly fi- uh, fiscal issues. They're comfortable. They're more comfortable today talking about women's sports than they were just two years ago. Right. Um, and we're seeing that and it is beneficial, but they're still not running campaign ads on it. Right. The candidate committees and the candidate statements in large part revolved around inflation and crime and um, that that's basically about it. Uh, they, they didn't really get into any of the family or cultural issues, which frankly leaves out a, a lot of potential voters that we can turn out to the polls. I, at, from the from the ten thousand foot view, I think two things are responsible for our defeat. One is a, a lack of willingness from Republicans to actually engage engage effectively on cultural issues, especially abortion. But two. And I don't know how to solve this problem. Democrats are collecting ballots. They're playing a game of how many ballots they can collect. And Republicans are still trying to win voters. They're still trying to win elections. They're they're allowing a lot of the turnout uh, just to be driven organically by um, who voters prefer and which policies they prefer. The big problem there, though, is that Republicans don't want to tell voters specifically what policies they're going to do. They don't. They just want to be an anti-party um, um, right now in the midterm. So we've got to change those two big things because abortion's not going anywhere. Uh, if I'm a Democrat, I'm putting those abortion amendments that we saw in Michigan, Kansas, and Kentucky, I'm putting there those everywhere I can in 2024. And I'm going to attack my Republican counterparts. So we have to come up with the solution and the answer to that. Otherwise, we're going to continue to lose elections. Um, it seems like we had two really successful campaigns this round, right? One is the much ballyhooed Florida overperformance, right? Once a swing state, maybe leaning red, now deep red under DeSantis. How much of that has to do with internal migration? It's not really clear. But even if it was, you know, if, if migration is a significant factor, it's obvious that people are leaving and migrating to Florida um, because of, of the policies that have been implemented there. But the other the other big success story for the Republican Party, um, I think rightly being ignored because at the end of the day, it's kind of one of those close but no cigar situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is in New York. Um, if Republicans hold the House, it'll be because of flip seats in New York. It'll be because of the campaign that Zeldin ran in New York, um, which swung the state by 17 points. Now, it started below sea level for Republicans. So <laughs> that that wave really did, you know, it was it, it was a only a moderate ripple by the time it got to the beach. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but it's still like a, a huge success. And um, it seems to me that both those campaigns have two things in common. And you tell me how this meshes in with the, the sort of 10,000 foot picture you just laid out for us. One is they didn't run away from social issues. They either dealt with them, even abortion. So um, I do think abortion helped hurt Zeldin in New York. Um, but uh, in the case of Governor DeSantis, he just kind of dealt with it early. So they passed a 15-week ban, which is where roughly the the American public is, um, meaning leaving it legal mostly through the first trimester. Um, they passed that. They got it out of the way. And then they stopped talking about it. Um, but on every other cultural issue, what you might call the, the quote-unquote modern culture war issues, um, leaving abortion to the side for a moment, both Zeldin and... Um, DeSantis went hard, right? Mm-hmm. They were willing to criticize corporations, woke corporations. They made a big deal out of what was being taught um, to children in schools um, and, and made sure to to advance solutions, including school choice, aggressively. Um, and in the case of Zeldin, I do think like crime is the number one reason why uh, he was able to even make inroads even into New York City. I mean, he overperformed. There are parts of Brooklyn that are red now. Um so, I mean, he, he overperformed, uh, I think, due to that that issue, which I count as a, a sort of modern culture war kind of issue. Um, but they also did something else, which is th- they both came off as kind of reasonable otherwise, right? They went hard on exactly the, some of those issues that you're pointing to that are 80-20 or 75-25. And on everything else, including fiscal stuff, um, they they were essentially, they were trying to exude a certain amount of, of normalcy. Mm-hmm. on those issues. Do you think that that's important or am I buying a sort of establishment line about candidate quality? 
No, I, I, I think though, I, I think candidate quality is very important. You have to, uh, what's the rule in politics? You have to at least appear normal. Um, as, uh, you know, I think we fail to do a lot of times. I think Democrats fail to do that a lot of times, but it just doesn't matter as much to a lot of their, their base voters. But no, it's they very important. Fetterman, so. I mean, yeah, no, but it's the the thing why we have to appear normal and uh, it, and and it's a do or die for us is because we don't have the mainstream media as a enormous elite cultural institution willing to back us up every single time. Democrats have that. So they'll exploit um, every time we come across as unhinged or do anything too crazy. Um, but I, yeah, I think I think it's candidate quality is very important, but candidate quality is a lot of things, right? It's appearing normal. It's raising money. It's setting up a campaign campaign infrastructure. It, it's also being a leader, right? And and being clear about your vision and what you're going to focus on and what legislation you're going to work to pass in the next term. Voters, I look, I'm still an optimist. I'm still a romantic about America. I think that voters are forward looking, right? They don't really care so much about what you've done. I think they do in a, in, in a certain aspect and that it convinces them that you're able to accomplish things and that, you know, if you have a track record of delivering, you'll probably be able to deliver in your next uh, group of, or, you know, group of promises. But um, really leadership is everything. And that's where I think you saw the big distinctions between Zeldin um, and DeSantis versus a lot of the guys that went down in flames on uh, last Tuesday is it's very obvious what Ron DeSantis is going to do in his next term, right? And it was very clear with voters in New York what Lee Zeldin was going to do um, if he were to get elected. And and ultimately, um, voters rejected the candidates entirely where they didn't think it was clear or where they didn't know. Um, and I look, I can't reiterate this enough. Midterm elections are base turnout elections, and you have to do everything you can to motivate your base. It's it's not the presidential years where a lot of people show up uh, just because it's a president. This is where the, our voters, your base voters, are paying the most attention. And if you can't motivate them, if you can't give them what they're looking for, they're just not going to show up. And um, I, I think there's a lot of other dynamics here that we can maybe get into, but uh, that's the ten thousand foot view. Is it's a midterm elections are base turnout elections and you really have to show your voters that you're competent and you're going to continue to deliver on your promises. You mentioned lack of vision and that, that really comes from the top in the Republican party um, in terms of, I mean, we had a whole debate that kind of went under the the radar, I think for most of the country about, I mean, Mitch McConnell basically deciding to run on nothing, right. Um, very intentionally not to have a, a sort of top line. Now the Republican party sort of resolved on inflation as uh, it's, it's primary. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, every issue poll put inflation very, very high on the list or like general economic outlook, number one or number two. I mean, almost every poll of voters and we can get to them in a minute, like what happened with the polls, right? Cause this is as in my lifetime. This is the first time I remember the polls being off in a huge way in favor of Republicans. Um, but to, to their credit, you know, sort of to give them their due, uh, that, that was an issue that Americans were reporting they cared about. But there was no really, like, as you say, vision. There's no, it was not really clear what Republicans were going to do um, if they won the House and Senate or if they won. I mean, I think there were some governor's races where that was clearer. But, um, you know, the, to your point, there, there wasn't like, there was very intentionally a look at the Democrats, look how much they suck, mm -hmm. and then what what Republicans were going to do about it, especially on the federal level, was kind of a big question mark, I mm -hmm. think. Well, and, and also, I think that there's an aspect of pessimism versus optimism just in America in general, right? And when, Democrat, or when Democrats do best is when there's more of a pessimism, right? So think about... Um, Think about uh, Social Security and Medicare, for example, right? Um, we know that these problems or these these social programs are huge, enormous weights in our our, our fiscal um, budgetary and everything. Like they're they're really tying us down. But when it comes to ten percent inflation, voters don't want those things cut. When there's an uncertainty in the future and voters are pessimistic about the future, the last thing they want is to cut out any uh, entitlement reform programs that could help them. And what were Republicans talking about in the final days of the election? Like what were we? What were one of the only things that we actually got from McCarthy and McConnell? Entitlement reform. No one was calling for entitlement reform, 
right? And I think that that's one of the biggest problems with Republicans in leadership is they're just totally out to lunch and they have no real connection with everyday voters. We can't, at the end of the day, like I get it. You want to reform entitlements. You want to, you think they're going to cause us to go bankrupt, but you know, talking about reforming entitlements is just not something voters want, especially when you have 10% inflation, especially when you think that there's something that's going to go bad in the economy. At those times, they want the assurance that someone's going to help take care of them and giving, you know, as the Republicans would have been all they talk about, giving your boss a tax cut is not really the economic uh, relief and assurance that voters are looking for. They're looking for something much more direct. And, and I think Republicans need to figure that out. If they're going to win in the future. Speaking of the leadership and McConnell, um, there seems to be a coup underway uh, in the Senate. We had a bunch of, in, in wake of these disappointing results for the Republican Party, we had a bunch of senators from Marco Rubio, um, you know, Josh Hawley, some some more surprising names on there. Um, a bunch of senators coming out publicly demanding new leadership in the Senate. Um and that's kind of a moot point at this point, since, you know, mm-hmm. it looks like the Republicans are going to lose the Senate. Um, mm-hmm. But regardless, it's kind of a break. Like McConnell had had an iron. There were a lot of dissatisfactions with McConnell over the years, especially from the base, but even within Washington, D.C., but it had all been very quiet and behind closed doors. Um, mm-hmm. Now we have a bunch of prominent senators publicly calling for new leadership, Um is, does this coup have any shot or, or is McConnell kind of the, the iron hand? And if it does succeed, how is it going to change the vision or lack thereof of the Republican Party? Um, so, yeah, I, look, I've been really shocked to see the amount of not the amount, but the quality of senators who are actually calling for a change in leadership. Right. Like it's not the Josh Hollies. It's not the Tom Cotton's necessarily. It's the Marco Rubio's. Lindsey Graham is calling for a change in leadership. Cynthia Lummis is calling for a change in leadership. There are these non-traditional, you know, these guys that really don't fit into the um, uh, the, the the reformer class in the Republican Party that are calling for a reform in leadership. So it's very interesting. I do think there's a better shot this year than not just because the results were so lacking, right? Um, and it was obvious that McConnell was playing games I don't know how much it would have affected the outcome, but, you know, we spent $9 million to save Murkowski. And I've actually heard good arguments for that, right? You, you, you spend that, you don't spend that money and she still pulls it out and she might caucus with the Democrats, right? So, okay, fine. I'll give you a pass there. But money is not, you know, is no object when you're, you're, you're Mitch McConnell, right? Like you need another $10 million. You call up your donors and you get them to give 10 million more dollars to your super PAC and they're probably going to give it. But he was purposely playing favorites, I think, um, in some of these key races or, you know, enemies uh, with some of these new Republicans because he thought that they would question his leadership and not fall in line. And it's interesting how um, how things play out. The irony here is thick because he still he might he might lose his leadership position because he didn't uh, invest enough behind Blake Masters um, and other candidates like that. So um, I do think it's there. We have a great shot. I don't. I don't know how it'll play out in the the House, right? It looks like a very slim majority that we're going to have there. So Kevin McCarthy is going to have to play all of his cards, right? I I don't know. I mean, Republicans could get together. A small group of them could get together and just refuse to vote for McCarthy, and um, that would that would cause chaos. So we'll see. I think the big race in the House to pay attention to is Whip, right? And I think that that's going to come down ultimately to um, Jim Banks or Tom Emmer. Uh, there is, um, you know, um, uh, Ferguson, Drew Ferguson's uh, in the race as well, and he's in the Freedom Caucus, so we'll see how he does. But I think um, I think that's where the real fight over GOP leadership is going to be in the House is, is over whip. Um, so the other explanation on the money, right, and something that personally ticked me off, um, because honestly, I would have been happy with the performance of this midterms if Blake Masters had made it over the line, right? Um I don't really I, I wouldn't have cared too much if the Republican Party had had 51 seats or or 54 seats in, in the in the Senate. Um, but I, I think that Blake Masters, I'll put my cards on the table. I mean, I, I think that Blake Masters is a very like promising candidate for the Republican Party. I totally disagree with people who said he was a bad candidate. He's you know very articulate. He has a vision. Um, I think it's an important shift in vision for the Republican Party. Um 
And it was, I was really disappointed to see that he's, he's not going to be in the Senate. Um, so there seems to be all this money. The reason I bring this all up, there seems to be this like sort of blame game going around about Arizona. Um, and it seems like there are three potential uh, sort of people or, or, or things to blame, right? One is to recall what you said earlier about ballots versus votes. Um, and to clarify, I think, I think what you were trying to, to imply there, because I, I don't know that distinction. I've never heard that distinction before, but I assume that it's about essentially collecting, harvesting ballots before Election Day versus those votes that are cast on Election Day. So one is, you know, maybe we need we need a strategy, um, especially if we're not going to win these races to clean up the election system and, and prevent some of these mass mail out sort of election disasters. Um, then, you know, that's one big candidate. Maybe the Republican Party needs a ground game in terms of, of ballot harvesting instead of complaining about it. Um, and then the other two were essentially money issues, right? Um, and I've heard this from essentially both sides of this this uh, circular fighting squad that has has sprung up in the GOP kind of traditional lines, right? MAGA Trump types uh, versus the establishment, right? The establishment says these candidates were just, you know, bad candidates. They were too crazy. That's why we didn't put any money behind them because we knew they wouldn't win. And lo and behold, they haven't won. Right. Um, and then the, the MAGA types say, well, of course they didn't win. You know, they, they came very close, but they had absolutely no money. I mean, um, Blake Masters got outspent by some crazy factor by, by Kelly. Um, and they, they point the finger at McConnell and say, you purposely didn't invest in these candidates because you don't like their message. Um, and then there's there's yet another thing that I, I read um, yesterday on on uh, on Twitter, reported on Twitter from Luke Rosiak, who's a great reporter over often a Daily Wire, other other outlets as well, pointing out that Trump also did this, quote unquote, fundraiser for Masters where the, the default setting on his website was ninety nine dollars for Trump and one dollar for like Masters. Um, and Trump generally hasn't spent out of his his war chest um, to try to get even Republicans who are aligned w- with what we might call e- either a realignment or a more ma- MAGA sort of vision in the Republican Party. He he has been completely selfish with that that cash and hasn't uh, helped them get over the line. So, you know, which of those explanations, maybe maybe a, one I haven't thought of. I mean, what, what does explain sort of the underperformance of some of these more realignment MAGA style candidates? Well, <clears throat> I want to address the Trump fundraising thing first because um, I, I, I have I can put this into context so that people can under, have a better understanding of what actually is happening. Now, I will preface this by saying I think that Trump would have been um, in a much better, stronger position uh, heading into 2024 if he had invested a lot more money behind these candidates. One, I think we would have won uh, more of our races, but then two, he he wouldn't have this this open and easy attack of raising hundreds of millions of dollars and then not reinvesting in the party for the midterms. But the reason why those emails go out and those calls to action happen and they get, they go, you know, they swing so heavily towards Trump and not the person they're saying is because it's part of a fundraising uh, tactic, right? You, you rent out emails, you rent lists uh, and you open it to whoever and the, it just so happens that the the Trump email list is one of the most coveted, and they they do very they take a very heavy cut um, for that for their organization. So basically, what what campaigns or organizations do when they rent these lists is they're saying, "All right, I'm not gonna you know it's not gonna cost me anything to rent this list, which most lists you know cost to rent. Um, but if I bring, I'll get a list of all these other people, and then the next time I hit them up, I can get all of it. So it's kind of like direct mail meets online marketing and online fundraising." It's just a different, you know, when you're doing direct mail pieces, you're losing money uh, when you send that out. Um, So um, it's all just a fundraising game. And so I, again, I I wish Trump would have spent more money, but these are just the type of things that candidates and and campaigns and organizations do um, to actually benefit from Trump and the incredible donor list that he's built up. Um, So that's context there. Uh, Look, again, I think the distinction that I'm making between ballots and votes is, is is what you said, which is it's a harvest. The Democrats have a harvesting effort. Republicans don't. 
Republicans uh, shy away from early voting um, and shy away from mail-in balloting. And we have to change that, I think, if we're going to compete with them. Now, ultimately, we should work to get rid of that. Unfortunately, that was the whole strategy behind winning these governor races in Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and or in Michigan was so that we could take over the governorships and then enact the election reform. Well, we failed in that. So now we've got to play by the play by the rules that they've set out um, until we can get power back and change change the rules back to something that makes so much more sense. Um, the good news is that we did win in Nevada for the governorship, so maybe we can work out a deal and get Nevada closer to how Florida runs elections, which, by the way, is it a really good, clean, and effective way to conduct an election? They, they, did, uh, they, 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 they counted and tabulated over 7 million votes on Tuesday night and release them within five hours. That's impressive. Arizona still hasn't. And we're more than a week out from the election. This is crazy. Um, you know, meanwhile, I you have know, friends so texting me, um, mostly like less political friends, I would say, but, um, people who follow the stuff less than, than you or I do, but people are texting me like, do we need the UN to oversee our elections? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? We don't have, we still don't have results actually in Arizona. <laughs> like, it's crazy. Look, and then our, our, our counterparts in the world, our rivals in the world, our enemies in the world, the, China's building hospitals, huge, enormous hospitals in three days, right? Three days they're building an enormous hospital. We can't even count election results um, in that time frame um, in some of these states. It's, it's, it's incompetent and it's it's borderline on whether or not it's an act of will. But I, I ultimately I think that Republicans had the message. We had the opportunity in so many cases, and I I do think we need to improve, especially when it comes to showing voters who's really extreme on the issue of abortion. Um, but we have to really start collecting more ballots, and we have to start matching there. Look, if Democrats get to harvest ballots, then we have to. It's like taking a knife to a gunfight. We're going to lose every time. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned this already. I, I don't know. I've already had this conversation with a bunch of people. Republicans got 1 million more votes than they did in 2018. Democrats got 13 million fewer votes than they did in 2018. And we're still losing these crucial elections. It's crazy to me. That's a net shift of 14 million votes. And we still lose in these critical races. It makes no sense. We have to start uh, being more strategic and being more aggressive when it comes to the early vote. Otherwise, we're going to get left out to dry. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, at least if there's no other silver lining about this, at least uh, all the, the calls about the Electoral College and how Democrats always win the popular vote. I mean, this time it was the opposite way, <laughs> opposite <laughs> round, right? The Democrats essentially eked out narrow victories in the states that they needed to, and Republicans won the overall popular vote um but i look forward to pointing that out when there are shrieks about the electoral college um but but there there's some other divisions i'd like to dig into here um so one of one of the most stark uh, in terms of actual voters as opposed to the republican party and their strategy is that basically um married men married women and single men all went to varying degrees republican and the thing that counterbalanced that is that single women went Democrat by like over 30 points. Yeah. 37 right? points. Um, so, so it's, it's really, there's a polarized thing here um, where basically everyone, but single women in America are voting mm -hmm. red and single women are voting so blue that it's offsetting um, everybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it seems to me that Republicans I don't even want to say Republicans, conservatives. I mean, people like you and I, Terry, like we've, we've been um, kind of whining about this for a long time about a family breakdown, about um, atomization, you know, uh, about sort of the radicalism of, of uh, what people will reach for if they don't have any kind of sort of civic grounding. Um, but, but politically now, it seems to me that this is a big, should be a big wake up call. We have to confront this problem politically, right? Either mm -hmm. one of several ways, right? We, there's only two ways to fix those kinds of things. We got to drive up the vote in everyone else, or we have to find a way to appeal to single women. And there's going to be a lot more of them. Um, you know, millennials are on track to be the most single and childless generation hitting 40, I think in American history, certainly in recorded statistics um, in the United States. So what are we going to do about it? Cause they don't well, like it. I, I don't know how to win over these single women, right? And I, 
I've thought about this. I actually gave a speech last Friday um, to a small group of Catholics in Dallas about the election and about the abolition of the family in America and how it's played out. Um, and, um, you know, this is a major part of it, right? Because part of the thrust for abolishing the family, which why Democrats wanted to do it, is when you have fewer people getting married, when you have fewer people having babies, when you have fewer people protecting their kids, you create this generation of tyrants, of people that really don't um, value the family and value the future, really. That's what really families are about, is they're about the future. Um, but think about this, like, what is the issue that's going to win over uh, uh, non-married women? Right. Like, is it it's not inflation, obviously. It's not crime. That was a big theme of this election. Um, do Republicans start to cave or change their position on different issues? Maybe it's the trans issue. Right. Uh, but I, I would be willing to bet that that non-married women are the drivers, especially non-married white women are the drivers of uh, the whole trans fight in general. Right. They, there's there's this radicalization that's happened with non-married uh, women in this country, especially white women. And I don't know the issue that would bring them back on board the Republican Party where you could save the Republican Party in any meaningful way. So I, what I told the group of Catholics in Dallas is we just have to stop having non-married women right? like we need to we need to decrease the level of non-married women in this country and there's a very easy easy fix for that especially for catholics uh which is to teach your girls to get married and to start a family earlier um stop putting it off don't don't um you know go to college and get a worthless degree go to you know if you want to go to college become a lawyer become a doctor become one of these things one of these positions that has an enormous and outsized influence on our on our culture and the direction of the country but don't go to college anymore you know to um get a uh, a women's history degree or you know something like that you you know if if you really don't know what you want to be when you get older then don't go to college just figure it out um maybe it's you know to get married i don't know but we really need to encourage family formation um, in our families. And, and I think you start with the more conservative families and the Catholic families, just keep having babies like I'm doing um, and, and teach your girls that there's nothing wrong with being a mom. There's nothing wrong with, with getting married early. Like if you have, if you find the one that you want to spend the rest of your life with at 22, do it, just get married. And it's actually, life's a lot easier with a partner uh, to support you and, uh, and to help you. It's, it's a lot easier actually. And, then, and economically, psychologically, everything, marriage alleviates a lot of your problems and makes you a happier person. Um, just marriage alone, right? So we need to do more to encourage people to get married at younger ages. Um, but it might not be actually uh, talking young married women into, uh, I'm sorry, young unmarried women into getting married might be more about like encouraging men to grow the hell up, right? Like I think men are are part of the big reason why marriage is is craters because we're all so immature now. We play video games, uh, we smoke a lot of pot, we don't get serious with our job. I know a lot of my friends; they still live with their parents at thirty five. You know, like that that's a red flag, I think, to most girls if you you try and take them out on a date and then take them back home to your parents' house. Uh, so. Look, I, th I think this next generation really needs to be um, taught uh, that family is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Having kids is a good thing. Um, but other than that, I, I just don't know the silver bullet that's going to bring married non-married women back to our corner. It's, it's very difficult. Um, so what about the flip side of that equation? It seemed like for a while uh, the Republican Party was going to become the party of parents, right? And Terry knows from whence he speaks on this. he got six kids. Um, but that's that's I mean, that's kind of the basis for a lot of APP's ads, right, is talking mm -hmm. to parents about issues that are affecting their kids, cultural issues that are affecting their families and their children. And for a while, it seemed like we do have sort of a, a parent army marching to school boards, marching, you know, and, and but did this this midterm kind of show the proof of that concept in the underlying data, even though overall we lost or um, d did it kill it? In other words, um this this marching army of parents did they show up in the midterms mm -hmm. and just were offset by whether it's unmarried single women on the issue of abortion or or whatever else or um, does the GOP still have a really long way to go before actually convincing uh, these parents that the Republican Party is is their friend in in uh, this fight for their children? So if you look at the exit poll numbers. Um, Gender by marital status. Married men made up 30% of the electorate. Married women made up 30% of the electorate. 
We won those two by 59% and 54%, or I'm sorry, with 59% of the vote and 56% of the vote. Those are married, married people. We win those, you know, we won married women by 14 points. We won married men by 20 points. Those are, those are margins and we need to drive those up. Republicans need to understand that their only path to success in the future is to drive the turnout among married men and married women. Now, I mean, the big deficit is something you were hitting on towards the end of your questioning, which is, um, do they look to the Republicans as an alternative to the Democrats? And I think that of all the liabilities that Republicans have in their brand, right? Like we've been branded as the corporate party that only cares about businesses and rich people. We've been branded as racists and Nazis and big, you know, fascists, whatever you want to say. I think, I think the bigger problem the, that the Republican Party has been branded on as, because it's with our base and it's with people that are the only people that are willing to vote, is we've been branded as, as a bunch of liars. We've been branded as con men who make a bunch of promises to the American people and then never deliver on it. Right. And I think that's why Trump is so beloved in the party. And that's why he, you know, there was no stopping him in the nomination process in 2016 is because Republicans were so fed up with their own party that they were willing to blow up the whole system. They were willing to take a risk and blow up the whole system. We, we get, think about this. We gave them 2010, right? They took, we, we, the Republicans took over the house by huge margins. I think it was like 63 new Republicans elected that year as a huge year. Um, but then 2012 comes around we nominate Mitt Romney. Well, we lose. 2014, they tell us, oh, we want to balance the budget. We want to do all this stuff. We got to get the Senate back. So we give them the Senate. They still didn't do anything, right? Republicans have a long, sordid history of breaking their promises to the American people and not delivering. And that's why people like Trump, who ends up overturning Roe in his first and only term, right? Like, why did it take Republicans 60 years to overturn Roe? Or I'm sorry, 50 years to overturn Roe. We've had how many? We've had more Republicans nominating. Uh, uh, we've, I'm sorry, we've had more Republican nominated Supreme Court justices in that time frame, way more than Democrats have. And it's it's because Republicans never deliver on their promises, and that's the real threat. So once Republicans really start delivering on uh, opposing the threats to the to the American family and to our children, I think things will start to turn around more, and you'll that that. 60% of the electorate of married men and women, that'll increase um, to 65%. And the margins will also increase uh, because those will be our people. We, we have to treat married men and women the same way Democrats treat unmarried women, right? We have to value them just as much and give them what they want. Republic, Democrats are willing to embrace abortion after birth in order to keep uh, unmarried women on board. What are Republicans willing to do? That's an open question because I don't know what they're willing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and there are some issues that are, are actually quite sort of easy or low-hanging fruit that Republicans just don't um, – here I'm thinking about in the states, right? Um, there was this huge push uh, in 2021. There was a biggest school choice push in in history. But what I was really worried about is actually, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of people who are coming out to vote Republican for the first time because they're so fed up with what's going on in the school system. And – we have like, like if Republicans don't deliver and here I do think Florida is probably the instruction manual, right? Like, um, you know, DeSantis has not just he's expanded at the, the state school choice program. Florida already was pretty robust in terms of, of school choice options, but he's expanded them further. Um, and on top of that, he's put a bunch of content restrictions in place and he started to, to actually make sure that those content restrictions are enforced. Um, he, he's consistent in, in actually, you know, care, not just like talking about the issues in schools, but actually backing it up both with legislation and with executive enforcement. Um, it seems to me we don't have a really good example of that. So I'll, I'll give you the, the corresponding example would be Texas, where Republicans have ruled for decades. Um, and Texas is considered the, the, the sort of, uh, I don't know what, what metaphor I want to choose here. The, uh, the sort of the mecca, the glittering mm. jewel for school choice, because for you know basically twenty years, Texas has resisted. Texas Republicans have resisted uh, passing any kind of private school choice program, and it's Republicans that have stopped it. And mm. and every poll shows that Republican base is like eighty five percent in favor. 
right? Especially now it's, it's an 80 to 90, 85 to 90% in favor of the Republican base. And now they care specifically about this issue, given the last few years and shutdowns and, um, you know, all the content that's been in the schools. And, you know, we still don't have school choice in Texas. Um, so it seems to me there's a huge danger here and school choice is just one issue, but, um, there's a huge danger here in actually making these promises, uh, promises that I think you and I and like people who are sort of into the culture war think are so necessary, but then, you know, what are we actually going to get out of the Republican party for making those promises? That's, that's a totally open question. Right. And, and, and they, you know, it's, it's amazing how little Republicans have delivered over the past few years. Right. And Democrats, you talk to a Democrat and they, they have the exact opposite um, take. They look at the Supreme court as everything, but when you, when you get down to it, what did Trump do in his first term uh, or in the first two years when we had a Republican culture, he gave us basically corporate tax cuts and he gave us some, you know, good family tax cuts, but those are temporary. The corporate tax cuts are permanent, right? It should, I, I think it should have been the, the exact opposite. Um, but um, look, I think Texas is a, an example of a, of a, of a red state, that is very close to becoming purple. And I, I know Abbott proved us wrong here in this last election. He won by a pretty sizable margin. But the problem is, is that if you don't actually reinforce uh, American values and your law and you don't continually update it and protect it from all these new threats, you end up turning into California. California used to be much redder than Texas is now. It was a solid red Republican state. Ronald Reagan won it. Nixon won it. It wasn't until the 90s when things started really falling apart for Republicans out there. They used to control everything, um, but they stopped delivering. They had too much prosperity. They they allowed, um, and the, but they didn't protect themselves socially. So what happened is if you know all these blue voters started flocking to the great economy of California and there were no social laws uh, restricting, you know, all the things that liberals want, like, uh, you know, free sex and drugs and all of that. And so they didn't really have to choose. States like Florida are making voters choose. You can have our great economy, but you can't groom children in schools. You can have our great economy and our great business environment, but you can't do abortions after 15 weeks. We need to start thinking in those terms, at least to keep more blue voters out of our states. That's how Democrats think, and we need to think a lot more about it. So in Texas, you know, they're, they're starting to do a lot of, like, I think the, the Harpy bill did a lot to uh, fight against that. Uh, we'll see the long-term effects of it, but they really need to start doing more to protect the minds of their kids in that state. Because if you can't protect the minds of your kids from being indoctrinated or groomed, uh, it's only a matter of time before you lo- start losing your elections. So let's wrap up with this. Um, where, where is the average American voter? This is the all important question, right? Um, where are we as a country? Because once again, I find myself sort of up a creek without a paddle. I, I really thought that um, I was joking online that this is the, my, you know, I don't know anyone who voted for Nixon election, right? I, I really don't understand how, even with all of the, the sort of caveats that we've just talked about, how, you know, Republicans had no vision, how they haven't delivered on promises in the past, how, um, you know, they, they are reluctant to actually defend themselves when they're attacked, for example, on issues of abortion, they, they, they just sort of retreat and try to talk about inflation. I, I understand all that. And, and I think that's all like, the, obviously, I think it's important, or I wouldn't have hashed it out um, on this podcast with you. But it still shocks me that after the last two years that we've had, um, after the continued, you know, uh, lockdowns and masking on, until just, you know, six months ago, basically, right, um, and still fighting out those issues in some public school districts. After the and, and yes, the economy and inflation and the t- like going through the roof and the economy in the tank after two years of aggressive defense of the most heinous things you could possibly imagine in public schools. Right. Mm-hmm. Pornography in school libraries after, you know, um, the the uh, energy crisis and after, you know, Biden's still going out there and, and Biden's midterm sort of closing message was. Republicans are a bunch of Nazis. Uh, and by the way, um, I talked to this this trans kid about how transitioning for minors is a uh, a moral imperative. 
Okay, that was his closing message. And still we get these like very muted midterms where Republicans do pick up some seats in the House, but it's no more than your typical party out of power sort of rebuke. Mm-hmm. I mean, where are the American people? Am I totally, am I just like off in a corner here with, with, our, with our buddies where these things are, are obvious? Like what, what is going on in the mind of the average American voter that they basically, you know, pretty solidly, uh, came out for for Democrats after these last two years. Well, first of all, I think the number one thing when you're thinking about the American people that you have to keep in mind is that people like you and people like me are very odd, right? Like this is our life. This is our job. We are nonstop paying attention to the national discourse, the public policy that's being debated. Um, you know, the, the time of the day when everyone's shutting off the TV because it's the news and it's politics, we're turning it on, <laughs> you know, so like we're very odd. And so the things that are puzzling to us are not going to be puzzling the American people. Um, look, you go back, you know, I, I, I realize you're from New York, so you're, you're a little even more different than I am. But I'm from the Midwest. Right. And I talked to California, my, actually, it's worse. Oh, oh, my gosh. So <laughs> you live. OK, so my friends in the Midwest, though. They hate Republicans almost as much as Democrats. They don't, they don't trust Republicans. And so they're not motivated to go to the polls and vote. The first person that they really showed up to vote for was Donald Trump. Um, now that said, I don't think that those guys are still going to show up to vote for Donald Trump, uh, in 2024. I think that they've been disillusioned again <laughs> at the lack of progress. Um, ultimately where I think the American people are is they they know they're hurting. They know that things aren't looking good. They don't like Democrats, but they dislike Republicans more at this point. That being said, I don't think that has to be the case. I think we, this is a, a topic for a whole other discussion. I think that the number one uh, theme from the Republican nominee in 2024 has to be about firing and getting rid of everyone in the administrative state cleaning house, not eliminating it, but replacing it with everyday Americans, um, at least temporarily, because right now the president doesn't really do anything. Uh, In my message to the American people, if I was a nominee, would be, you know, things really haven't changed much in this country for the better. We haven't, we've had so many different presidents. We've had Democrats and Republicans, but things only accelerate and get worse for us. Republicans get elected and they pump the brakes on, on all the bad stuff that's happening in our lives. But then Democrats get in and expand the administrative state and things get so much worse faster. That's because the president doesn't do anything anymore. The president is now a ceremonial figure. That's why Democrats don't really care that Joe Biden has dementia and is senile as hell. It doesn't matter because the administrative state's running everything and they're fine with the direction that they're taking the country. So I think ultimately it has to get back to normalcy and having a constitutional government where the executive branch executes the law, the legislative branch legislates, and we start to really cut back on the power and influence that the administrative state has over this country. And if we don't do that, then we're just going to continue to slow boil into literally, like you think about this, like, the U.S. government today is much bigger than the the United Socialists uh, of the Soviet Republic, right? Like they, their our government is much bigger than the Soviet Union um, at its height. Um, that needs to change um, because our government is doing even worse stuff to us now. I mean, we're not going to gulags, but it runs our lives in incredible ways that we don't even see. So, um, I think there's hope. Republicans just have to be that effective alternative and and give the American people the hope. Otherwise, it's just going to continue to slow boil um, into disaster. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point that things don't change increasingly. I feel like um, maybe that is more of an inside explanation, but that has increasingly been my explanation is that really changing the president doesn't doesn't do much. And and you make a good point that that's the reason that it's fine. It's I think that's also why it was totally rational to cast a vote for Fetterman if you're if you're a Democrat, right? That's going to be a party line vote. Mm-hmm. And um, it, but increasingly, our actual elected officials are secondary to what actually happens for four years while they're ostensibly in charge, or two years where they're ostensibly in charge, right? So um, I think that's that's very true. I actually I, I thought of one more question uh, to ask you, and this one's kind of a, a controversial one to close it out. But you know, what will what do you think the role of Trump will be uh, going forward in the Republican Party? Obviously, now there's there's sort of uh, this this contrast: Trump's attacking uh, Youngkin and attacking um, 
DeSantis, right? He's got nicknames for them. Um, I, 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 I laughed a lot at young kin. <laughs> he said it sounds Chinese. <laughs> like, China. So if nothing else, Trump is entertaining. But, um, you know, what, what is Trump's role going forward uh, in the Republican Party going to be? You just said that, you know, your friends in the Midwest are disillusioned yet again. That doesn't mean that they're going to be not disillusioned with one of Trump's primary opponents. So, um, you know, where, where, where are we going on this, on this Trump train here? Well, that, that's, and I'm not punting, um, but we saw what happened when DC tried to stop Trump in 2016. NRO, you know, everyone, they all pulled out the stops to try and stop him and it didn't work. Um, it actually backfired. The more the DC tried to play in that game, the, the stronger he got. Um, I think ultimately Trump's going to remain in the Republican Party. He's, you know, it would be like having any other very popular uh, Republican president um, being involved. So it's ultimately how big his role is going to be in the Republican Party is going to be up to voters. Um, I, 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 I think ultimately he'll at least be a kingmaker. Um, I, I think he feels uh, shortchanged. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that Republican voters um, don't hate him as much as the mainstream media want them to. And I don't think that they blame him for the midterm uh, results. I think they blame Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and Ronda McDaniel much more. Um, but um, he's still beloved, right? A lot of people really love him. And they, as, as much as like they, my friends feel disillusioned, they still view him as the best Republican we've had in a very long time. Um, and um, I think they're more just worried about whether or not he can overcome the, the administrative state. Um, because we didn't, that didn't work out so, for us so well in his first term. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I, 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 I don't want him to go away because he really did something that no other Republican was able to do, which is show Republicans how to fight and show Republicans that they shouldn't just get bullied and slapped around uh, so much by Democrats. And you, you can take on the mainstream media and win um, and you shouldn't take their lies and you should push back as hard as you can. He really did revolutionize the Republican party in huge ways. And there is no DeSantis without Trump, right? There is no new Republican party. We're Jeb Bush right now without uh, Donald Trump. So I don't know what his role is. I mean, as it stands now, I think he's got a great shot at retaining the Republican nomination. Um, it's going to be up to DeSantis on whether or not he gets in. Um, but I, I kind of take an all of the above approach. I, I think we should hash things out and then get, you know, get back together like a nice, big, happy family and, and win this Republic back. But there's a lot of issues and strategies that need to be debated and discussed. And um, it'll be interesting to see who gets into this 2024 field. Terry Schilling of APP, thank you so much for joining High Noon. Really loved having you here. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.